Hello and welcome to another episode of I Spit on Your Grades. This week we are doing the Frosties murders. Frosties? Coco Pops, Weetabix, Serial oh. Killers. Uh, oh. uh, always, always lead with a joke. I am Chris. You're already aware of that. I am joined as always by my co-host. Faye is looking very amused. Hello. And Mercer is also looking very amused. Bonjour. How are we both this week? Are we well? Not so bad, thank you very much. Mercer, how's yourself? Yeah, more good. All gravy, actually. Fine. Just, uh, I've just been trying to watch uh, Final Destination 5 um, since about half four this afternoon uh, when I finished work. And it's now what gone eight o'clock off eight, and I'm still, I'm still trying to watch Final Destination Five. Why are you having such a problem watching it? Are you using Sky Broadband? Is that, is that what it is? No, um, I I think I've got an illness, which is that my eyes keep closing, um, and then keep opening, and time's gone by. <laughs> I don't know why. I keep falling asleep for I today have watched Endgame again. Um, had a little bit of a punch in the feels again. Um, and Jennifer's Body, which I didn't used to be revved about Jennifer's Body, but I absolutely adore Jennifer's Body. It's actually a really good film. And I don't know why I didn't give it that mature chance the first time I watched it, why I thought it was so bad. I have no idea why, because I really enjoyed it. Also been catching up with Afterlife. The second series. Second series, yeah. Yes, not the third. In preparation for the third, because that is an amazing programme. Yeah, we won't spoil it for anyone because it's it's great. It's it's rare that a comedy show you would think you don't want to give spoilers away, but it's that well written that yeah, I don't want to I don't want to tell anyone what happens or what comes up because it's just um, it's for me it's Gervais' best piece of work. It's genuinely it's joyful, it's sad, it's hilarious. Is he, for me, the best piece of work he's ever done? Have you been watching anything else, Mercer? Actually, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. I've been re-watching uh, Peep Show. Oh. Yeah, um, it's on Netflix. And I said this before, like when I first saw Peep Show, freaking hated it it was terrible and then I watched it like years later I thought oh no do you know it's not as bad um, and watching it again I'm like this is fucking genius like I don't know why I never I don't know what was wrong with me I don't know what was wrong with you because Peep Show always has and always will be top tier British television I can't speak about Peep Show too much because I'll go on for a long time as well you know I know Peep Show inside out anybody wants me on a Peep Show podcast Please feel free to come at me, bro, because I, I have thoughts and opinions and many hours of things to say about Peep Show. Is that normal pooing? Is that normal pooing, Mark? <laughs> this is bullshit. Sorry. See, that's the problem. Right. When you when you start going when you start going down the Peep Show rabbit hole, there is nothing but con it's one of the most quotable shows on TV. Again, another masterpiece. A lot it's impossible to understate or overstate just how good British comedy 
has been over the past 20, 30 years. Mm. Shall we delve into some feedback before we start to discuss these films? Yes, go on. Who has got back to us this week with their favourite serial killers? First of all, we had Dan Poppermatic come at us with probably seven other stylists. But the Poughkeepsie Tapes is one of the few films I legitimately find upsetting. I didn't know Poughkeepsie Tapes was a serial killer thing. Yeah, it's entirely about a serial killer who filmed his crimes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest films I've ever seen in my life. I just don't know how to watch the Poughkeepsie Tapes because I can't find it anywhere. To, like, I can't buy it. I don't know where you buy it from. And I fucking love that film. I think it was on US Shudder, but we didn't get it because UK gets none of the good stuff when it comes to Shudder. Take fucking note, Shudder. Big shout for the stylist there as well. Yeah, like, stylist is play, amazing. Yeah. Saw it play at Celluloid last, not last year, the year before now. Time is slipping past. I know. But yeah, the late year before last from Jill. Jill I would say Jill Six, but that's not our actual name. So well, on Twitter it is. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely brilliant piece of work. I know Mercer, you were a little bit less enthused. Enthused with it, but we both loved it. Yeah, I also think I was just tired that entire festival. Uh, so give it, a, give it a rewatch. I think you'll really enjoy it on a rewatch. It is a really and honestly, one of the most perfect endings to a film I've ever seen. An ending where there should be an ending. And it packs such a punch with it. I love it. Um, we also had some feedback from Select Match Type Podcast. That's uh, Chris's mistress podcast. Yes, this was not me, though, I would say. So unless it's a AI dangerously impersonating myself, it'll be my co-host, Sai. It is. Um, and... Sias said, Seven has to be up there. Another great film Meatloaf was part of. Rest in peace. My apologies, Sai. You've got the wrong film, love. Yeah. I'm really sorry. Not that I want to pile into, <laughs> pile into my co-host immediately. But yes, Meatloaf was in Fight Club. He's not in Seven. Yeah. I can understand why you got confused, because David Fincher did both. And Brad Pitt was in both. And Brad Pitt's in both. Yeah. And it's a brilliant And Morgan film. Freeman looks exactly like Meatloaf. He does. There is an uncanny resemblance. Yeah. So we understand the confusion, but sorry, Sai. I would do anything for love. <laughs> but I won't do that. I can't do Morgan Freeman's accent. It's uh, it's unique. I can't do it. I don't think anyone who isn't him should really have a go at it. <laughs> Apart from that bloke on the insurance ads, who was really good and could do the impression of him. Yeah. Anyway, that's all the feedback we had this week. Uh, we assume you were out doing other things. Pitiful. Yeah. <laughs> can't have, you can't have it packed every week. That's me That's me insulting Darren underscore Gaskell the other week, saying he took an age-decided favourite film. He's punishing us for not finding his favourite serial killer. No, um, Darren was actually on another podcast this week. I think it was called The Top Ten of Everything. So, bless him, he was probably a little bit busy. We'll let him off. Huh? Yes, <laughs> we'll let him off. Leave him alone. Anyway, um, Mercer, if we're going in some sort of date order, I believe you're up to bat first. I am up to bat first. Um, in the first of probably the most depressing episode that we're ever going to do, um, I don't think any of these films have any joy <laughs> to them whatsoever, but they are really good. 
most depressing one ever. Do you not remember our best Australian horror episode where we covered the Babadook and also the Armageddon end of the world? These final hours. These final hours and also the loved ones. That All was, of them an absolute was, riot. That, that were a bit depressing. Well, there's a little bit of fun behind them. We'll all see when we start talking about these that it's just doom and gloom mm. and grime and great and death and murder and leading into um, my very first, not my very first choice of film ever, but the choice of film first for this episode is 1986, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, uh, directed by... Oh, I think that's the first clap I've ever had. Really, that's the first time you've ever had the clap. I doubt it. <laughs> I am clean. Um, yes, this is uh, directed by John McNaughton. Um, it's one of his earliest films, probably, I think it might be his first, actually. Um, John McNaughton, in, in case we don't know, went on to make other great films such as Wild Things, oh. Boom Boom, and um, Can't Come Out to Play. Or the, the harvest. harvest. The yeah. harvest. That was retitled terribly. It's um it's a very simple story, actually. It's um literally just about it's three main characters. We've got Henry, um, the serial killer, his roommate Otis, who also becomes a serial killer, and Becca, Otis's sister, who is just fleeing from her abusive husband, and she comes and stays with um Henry and Otis. And that's the, the story is literally that. All that actually ensues is murder, 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 attempted rape, murder. Yeah. Murder. There's no, there's no, there's no actual, there's no real kind of storyline. I guess the storyline's more about, I almost feel like the storyline's more about Becca trying to like, you know, sort a life out, you know, find true love, get a child back start a life again well you said prior to us discussing this that the whole film is based on um the based on the story of a real serial killer but his thoughts or his right. false accounts so henry lee lucas is a real serial killer and he confessed to hundreds of murders um some of them ended up being fabrications some of them were real I think when you watch the film as well, they, they use the kind of like, Henry tells a lot of stories and kind of changes things in them. So, you know, Henry, the, the man, Henry, the character lied. I think probably as a sign of respect towards the victims of Henry Lee Lucas, they didn't base it on his actual crimes, but yes, these fabrications. Uh, and also Becky and Otis did exist don't know if they would call Becky an artist, but Otis was um, a friend and Becky was his 11-year-old niece. Oh, shit. And Lucas did have um, an affair with the 11-year-old child. So obviously they didn't do that in the yeah. film. So they, they aged Becky up, um, made her Otis's sister. And I think it was still quite disturbing anyway. Yeah. Um, it literally starts with a death we open up on a dead body <laughs> and you're just like oh god this is grim this is already grim well there are cool yeah i mean there's corpses everywhere within the first five 
10 minutes. Mm. Not a great deal of actual killing at the start. Or the aftermath. Yeah, it's more just the images of what, the more kind of shocking images of just flat out these bodies laying there rather than the glamorization of the killing that well, might say. That could maybe be based on the fact that he, he has been fabricating these and, you know, he's told them what he did to them. So rather than going into detail about how they came to be that way, that's how they were found or maybe, I don't know. It, it, I, I don't know if it's the time with it being at the 80s, but it felt very like Maniac-esque in its, in its style. Yeah, it, it does feel... Um, when you say maniac, I, I think like B mover, like mm. a bit, bit uh, maybe not just gritty. Um, I think that was an intentional choice that they made rather than it just being cheap. Mm. Um, I kind of, in my mind, like that opening sequence of seeing like them different victims dead in different ways, and we've got females and we've got males. Um, makes me in my mind it's almost like setting up the kind of scenario which we learn in the film which is henry doesn't have a preference on who he's going to kill he doesn't care what gender what age and he doesn't use the same mo every time because he knows that in order to get away with his crimes he can't have like a a type or a, a specific way of killing him and that to me is, is probably one of the scariest kind of aspects of the film in the fact that literally nobody is safe from him. It's scary as well that he kind of doesn't have any control over it. Cause like me and Chris were discussing it and saying, um, when it does get to the end part and how the film ends, it is basically that he, he has to be who he is. It's in his nature to do this. It is. Um, I was just thinking then though, as, as you're saying, yeah, cause obviously with the killings, they're, br they're brutal when we do see them. They're quite, they're quite nasty, some of them. But in the same way, while it's just, they would argue it's in his nature and the way he acts out wildly. The fact, as he says, he doesn't have the MI, he deliberately sets out to keep moving, don't kill the same people, don't use the same weapon. That's not the mark of a man who's out of control. That's the mark of a man who is just a cold-blooded killer and... Who, is des who designs their life around being that person rather than these being an actual cat, rather than it being raw emotion leading to his killings is much colder than that. Sorry, that's that's what I meant in terms of it. Not not by out of control, like just doing it willy-nilly as in, like say, it's his nature and it's something that he doesn't, he can't escape and he clearly doesn't want to. He wants to continue doing what he's doing. And that's to the point where he takes somebody else on board with it as well. But like, I was surprised how quickly Otis jumped on board with it and went with it because the first killing they did, they were like, oh, let's go out for some ice cream or whatever. And they went out for food after. And I'm like, that's not, that's not a sane thing to do after you just murdered somebody. After the first murder, Otis was very disturbed. He, he, he was struggling a little bit with it because it was so unexpected. He was, and then, then he gets pissed off and he's like, I want to kill someone. And and like that's his gateway. He's like, come on, then let's do it. Woo! And you're like, what the fuck? That's mad. Um, there's no rationale behind his killings, but he's very rational with what he's doing. Um, and that's, again, that's just, it's really disturbing. It's really 
dark um mm-hmm. he also very kind of ted bundy like when when like you have him and otis together you've got otis who's a full-on horrible disgusting pervert vile incestuous prick yeah who you look at and in this film you go he's definitely a fucking killer Whereas Henry's like a little bit more charming. He's not very well educated, but he's he's nice. Like when he meets Becky, he tries to be nice to Becky, tries to be polite to her and jumps to her defense when Otis is being a bit dirty with her, like touching her bum and stuff. Mm. So, so yeah, again, it's very Ted Bundy-esque because he's quite a nice, he's not nice, but he's quite charming in what he does um, yeah. in, in the real world. Um, and you almost, I don't know, it's like, I think this is something that comes across in another film that we talk about, but there's almost like an element, I think, of hu- trying to humanise him with us. I, th- I think like, I think that's just a natural thing to do because I guess you don't really want to believe that somebody is that awful. So you do try and add a bit of rationale to it and go, well... I think, you, I think when you're making the film as well and you're telling the story... You have to wrap something around it. You can't just have him go out and just kill people for an hour and a half, hour and twenty, whatever this is, because very quickly you lose your audience. Because no one's gonna, who's gonna sit there and just go right. So I've seen him kill one person, and then right, we've seen him kill fifteen people in different ways over an hour and twenty minutes without any backstory, without any wraparound, without any trying to offer something more than just a series of killing. Because see, they try to delve into why. He's the way he is. Obviously, we have the backstory with him, his mum, making him watch her have sex with various people, but we don't know how much of that's true because, obviously, he gives the three different ways of killed her, stabbed, shot, Paul Keel, wherever it were, wherever it the other way was. So we don't know how much of yeah. that is true, so we don't know how much of her and his backstory is true. But as I say, I think it's that that's why they need to do add on this layer of humanisation. Just to, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to mention this because this this was quite a, not a funny element of the film, but something that just totally baffled me to the point where I was nearly laughing about it. He's given this story about what his mum made him do when he was younger. Um, again, watch, making him making him watch them have sex and beating him. And the girl, sorry, what's the girl's name? Becky. Becky. Becky, Becky seems totally unfazed by this. She's like, huh? And that's about it. And the minute he says, and she and she made me wear a dress, she's like, oh my God, that's disgraceful. It's like, because, because you were wearing a dress. Out of all of that, that was the thing you found most disturbing. It made me laugh, sorry. That is quite funny. I think in that story as well, um, he mentions a brother. And then later on in the film, his brother changes to a sister um, right at the end. So yeah, you're right. How much of his backstory is actually true? I mean, I think it might in in my mind. I'm like, that's just what he's told people when he went to prison. Like, this is what I went to prison for. Mm. Um, but there must be some element of truth behind it, possibly. Um, and then they, it were almost like a competition between him and Becca. He's like, I killed my mum because of this, so she's like, Yeah, well, my dad used to do this to me. You're like, Oh fuck. I think that's another thing. There's such damage. All all of them are such damaged characters, and like yeah. everything about them, like look where they live, look at the surroundings, look at the the lifestyle that they've had, the upbringing that they've had. They're such damaged people, and 
this is it's it's almost quite sweet the kind of blossoming relationship between Henry and Becca. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is almost quite sweet because you know, in like if this were a rom com, they'd get together and he'd stop killing people and they'd live happily ever after, um, wouldn't they? But it's like you know, it's got that kind of nice kind of oh, we're going to build a relationship here and we might actually see. A happy ending. I mean, I know it's, no, it's like a bad, bad real killer, killer, but there's that element of it kind of um, looking like it might work out differently. I completely agree with you, as you say. That kind of two damaged people finding each other and helping her, helping him get back on track and stop with the killing, and her or him dragging her out of this abusive cycle of relationships that she's been in and keeping an eye out for her. So I'm completely on board with what you say. If it had ended pleasantly, I would have been inclined to agree with you. But the whole film just goes to show that nothing changes, regardless of well, the yeah. relationship. And that's why it's not like a rom-com, because it's actually a bit more realistic. Because like I say, a rom-com would have this weird kind of turnaround, whereas in the real world, no, that, that old saying, a leopard doesn't change its pinstripe suit. Well, it's true. I just made that saying up because <laughs> I can't remember. What it is. I would I would like to see a rom-com where Matthew McConaughey kills Sarah Jessica Parker. Is that just because you want to see Sarah Jessica Parker dead in the film? Yeah, just <laughs> doesn't even have to be Matthew McConaughey. Oh. Scooby-Doo, Sonic the Hedgehog. Well, to be fair, for, for crimes against bringing back a series that is not working, I'll agree with you and say yes. Maybe we should be seeing that in a film. Maybe. Moving on, I'm going to move on with Henry now because I'm going to get to what I think is, for me, the most disturbing scene. It's after they get the video camera and we're watching the, the home invasion murder and we've got Otis with the woman that like feeling a fun and she's screaming and she's really fucking it's really believable this scene it's mm. a bit like disturbing not a bit it's very disturbing how real and graphic it feels and then that little kid comes in like the teen boy and he like that fight that him and henry have is so intense and again the way he's throwing him around and the way he's hitting him it feels like i'm i'm watching an actual snuff mover um and then this is the part that gets me. And I think probably maybe because of the time it was done as well. But then the way it kind of like pans out and we actually watch it, it's them two re-watching the murder that they committed. I'm mm. like, this is horrible. See, that scene is iconic because I'm not sure how many people have seen Henry Portrait outside of the horror community. But I can tell you loads of people who can tell you that scene without knowing what film that comes from. So it is, it is something where, because you're there and you're that example of you joining in with their voyeurism, the fact that you're no better than they are because you're enjoying watching it the same way that they do. Yeah. I mean, maybe enjoying is a strong word, Chris, but I get what you mean. We're actually, we are sat on that sofa with them because we're watching what they're watching. We're not in the scene, we're watching the scene. Which is, yeah. I, I thought a TV head guy were pretty pretty graphic. 
that's kind of bizarrely comic. It's kind of it's vicious and nasty, but kind of out of tone with the rest of the killings though. Yeah, he's like the comic relief in the film. The actual guy, the way he talks to them is quite funny. The way he's like, you know, fuck off, you cheap fucking television buying bastards. I come to work and do all this hard work for you, and he's just sat, sat on his ass. <laughs> That's last last time we're going to Curry's. <laughs> but no, he is like a common race. But I think all the deaths, like when they show the deaths, they've all got a sense of brutality in a way that's quite disturbing. Even like just the shooting, because it again, like it's just a random man who stops to help him, and they just point blank shoot him dead. And you're like, it's just brutal. It's just harsh. But for as simple as it is, I think the neck snapping as well is quite awful because it's just so quick and done with, and it's 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 not like like we said before, it's not it's not savoring what he's doing. It's just doing it to get to the end goal. It's just doing it to kill them. Yes, there's something about I think a lot of killer films with killers in where, like you said earlier, Chris, where they almost glamorize the murder. See, it's played out for an entertainment value and it's extended, whereas this just feels like this is a murderer and is just wanting to kill. Do you know how they made the uh, sound of the neck cracking? Crushing a styrofoam, styrofoam cup next to a microphone. Oh, yes. Yes, very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like the home invasion scene is just kind of sums up how horrible and dark this movie can be, mm. or not can be, how dark it is, is. And how dark it is. Yeah. And then even just like little scenes that you see, like when the, when he's when he's explaining about his MO, and while he's giving that like um, voiceover, the filming them bums attacking each other, and you're just like, this is like. There's, there's just something wrong with these people. Like, there's definitely something wrong with Otis. Otis, mm. I think, gets more pleasure out of the killing than Henry. Henry's almost like like a vampire, like he kills for necessity, um, whereas Otis is killing for fun. Yeah. With, with it. Um, but it's horrible. I, I love this film, and I hate this film, and I hate, what I hate about this film is poor Becca, because I love her. I think she's so sweet. She's so desperate to just sort her life out and she just doesn't know how to get away from these horrible men and influences in her life. And the scene where she like finally gets Henry to like go out with her and then she tries to, you know, seduce him in the bedroom and he freaks out. Mm -hmm. And then when he comes back and Otis is actually just raping his sister and you're just like, oh, I hate this. I hate you, Otis. It's one of the most gratifying scenes for me when she gets the um, sewing needle and whacks in Otis's eye. Otis's? Mm. Otis's Otis eye? Otis's? <laughs> it's a Otis. When she stabs him in the eye, I'm like, that's fucking, I am so glad that you've done that. And I know we shouldn't be glad, but he is a horrible person who does kind of deserve it. He definitely does deserve it. Um, I mean, it looks terrible. Like the, the prosthetic that they use does look fucking awful. I think Otis sells it. He is rolling around squealing like fuck when he gets stabbed through the eye. It looks, I think it, I think it's a really good scene. I, yeah, as you said, the prophetics are a little bit for their, as of their time, so to say, but I think, I think he's, his performance in that, 
I genuinely believe he's a man who's been stabbed in the eye. And we'll give perf- that man an award. Yeah. I think perf- he's really good as well. He's in um, Devil's Rejects and House of Thousand Corpses um, as the police officer, um, the detective. Um, I think the acting throughout is pretty solid. Um, I think I'm just going to get to the end, um, which is him, Henry and Becca doing a runner, dumping on his body. And Becky's just like, what are we going to do? How are we going to start his life? And he's like, we'll go to my sister's farm. She's got horses. We'll send for your child. Everything will be fine. And they go to the hotel, motel, and everything seems fine. And then the next morning, he gets up and he's having a shave. And then he gets in his car and he drives away. And you almost think that he's just left Becky behind. And then he pulls his car up and gets the suitcase out and dumps it. And you're like, oh, no. And then there's just the blood stained on it. And you're like, oh, no. That's that's going to be Becky, isn't it? Yeah. That's going to be... He's killed her. Yeah. You know what that is? She got that acoustic guitar out when they were in the hotel, motel room. <laughs> <laughs> He's sitting there trying to relax. She's like, right, give it a kumbaya on the go. Here we roll. Here we roll. Can't blame her. No. It's probably because she lied as well by saying she used to play when clearly she's never played a guitar before in her life. No. Uh, And then I think as well, something that I like about this film is the fact that he then just gets in his car and drives off. There's no come up for him whatsoever. He just commits his crimes and he moves on. There might be because it's Henry II. I don't know what happens in Henry II. Does he get caught? I've not seen it. I saw there was one. The cover looks... Not not great, and it hasn't got him playing Henry again. It's got it's recast. To be honest, I don't believe it's one I will probably go and check out at any point. No, I um there was meant to be a different Henry too that John McNaughton and um the scriptwriter whose names escaped me, uh, Richard Fire. We're going to work on which was going to be Henry getting caught and him actually talking about his crimes, but it never come to fruition. The film itself, as well, actually sat on the shelf for a while because one when it was made, um, the studios didn't know what to do with it because initially it was meant to be like more of a blood fest and I think maybe even a little bit more camper. Mm. But uh, Henry Rucker kind of brought this weird sense to it. He's um he's um a method actor, so he stayed in character while filming as well. Seventy two people. Yeah. But a lot of the time, like when he was telling stories, his assistant, like the person who was talking on set, didn't know whether it was a real story or Henry's backstory, because quite often he'd just make up stories as Henry. Um, so he's quite disturbing. I've I've cried over that man. I've cried over him when he were in uh, Guardians. And he cocked it, and I cried. I know. I was gutted not to see him start killing people with a magic flute. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm gonna round it up, and I'm gonna say this: Henry, the portrait of a serial killer, is it's dark, it's grimy, it's gritty, it, it doesn't offer us any kind of relief. Um, and that's, I've said this before. Sometimes I just want a film that just. It punishes us and then goes, and now I'm finished. Fuck you. Um, And you can't walk away with a happy ending. And sometimes I want that in life. 
And for that reason, that's why I picked Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer as my favourite serial killer horror holiday, horror, and um, serial killer holidays all round. Um, and that's why I think people should vote for it. There you go. Good film. Enjoyed, Good film. enjoyed Henry. Nice Sunday afternoon viewing before the football. Obviously, what lazy Sunday afternoon? Why wouldn't you put Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer on? Okay, so mine is up next. We've already had it mentioned in our audience picks of best serial killer film. It is the 1995 David Fincher directed Seven. Oh, sorry, hang on. Thank you very much. So you didn't even have to ask this time. You gave a look. I did give a look. Yeah. It's a great film. Anyway, quick plot synopsis. So we have Detective Mills and Somerset, played by Brad Pitt and... Mills and Boone. Oh, yeah, great, thank you. <laughs> played by Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. They are investigating the killers... Killers? The killings of John Doe, played by Kevin Spacey, as he sermonises and teaches the detectives lessons on morality and humanity via the seven deadly sins. And let's face it, a lot of very, very fucked up killings. You were saying yours, Mercer, about yours being dark and gritty and nasty. Yeah, seven is hardly the holiday romp that you would uh, you would expect it to be with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in there. The city plays a big part as a backdrop. It's crowded, it's noisy, it's dirty, it's either constantly raining or just constantly grimy. We we know just what scum and just what decrepit piece of garbage it is for the story Morgan Freeman tells with a guy who's robbed and then the guy goes back and stabs him through both eyes. Just that's the kind of place that John Doe is dealing with and he is teaching them all about as I say, the actual deaths themselves before we go into them in greater depth, all spectacularly original, well-designed. They, they're proto-saw, essentially. It's the OG saw. It's the OG saw. And they link beautifully into one another. Just this interwoven story is one killing links one to the next, to the next, as John Doe sets about the crate his masterpiece as he completes his seven deadly sins. It's just, it's just a spectacular, I can't say enough good things about it. It's spectacular. It's as high quality as you would expect it to be because it's a Fincher film and because it's like Hollywood budget produced film. It's, it still manages to maintain that grit, but it's a slick grit because it's got the money for the good cinematography and that's, stuff like that. That's, that's exactly it. Well, as you say, while it's grimy and dirty, it's shot in a, as you say, such a slick kind of shot, kind of slippy, slimy, goopy kind of, just more of a, a this awful glaze over this city. And as I say, it's the killings which are just absolutely brilliant in this as well. I know we were saying with Henry that we don't really focus a great deal on the actual 
act themselves because it's more about the immediate result, whereas this is more of a teaching moment from John Doe. But from where we start with gluttony, with the shut-in, being forced to eat or be executed, all the way through to our final wrath with Brad Pitt executing John Doe. What's the sin for the um, the skinny fella? Sloth. Sloth. Sloth is the most disturbing one to look at, I think, and especially when he jumps and comes back alive. So he has got some life left in him. It's oh, oh yeah, the ma- the makeup for Sloth is yeah, is spectacular. He he, he genuinely looks like a man who's been kept there and had various limbs sawn off and uh, yeah. kept in a state of some distress for an entire entire year. But I mean, the one for lust as well with the bladed dildo. Who I discovered was Leland Orsa, Leland Orsa the guy from Faults, and yeah. yeah. The guest and stuff, yeah, looking very young, looking very, very young, yes. but twas him. Very good this film. Yeah, mm-hmm. I enjoy him in this film. Um, I would say, uh, I've got to be honest with you now, this is probably my least favorite meatloaf film. Um, <laughs> I really like Seven, uh, in fact, I quite nearly love Seven. What I love about it is it's not like you know, it's it takes lots of different elements. So it's like a cop film, like a buddy cop film as well, though, um, with this fucking horrific set of killings. And um, yeah, I think it just works. And this, and, and almost a family drama as well. So it's got like all these, you're with like Gwyneth and Brad and the, the unbunch child that she's not sure whether she's going to keep, which she doesn't because she dies. Um, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> But you know what I mean? So it's got all these lovely little elements that, you know, a lot of films would focus on, like, diff- like, like it would be a buddy cop film or it would be like a, uh, you know, a breakdown of a marriage cop film. Uh, and we've got all these little elements that keep your interest up. And then these fucking brutal murders, like, just shoved in there. And like you said, just the grime of the city, the undisclosed city, may I add, because they don't ever say where it's set. Um, which I think is a very clever idea because it means that we don't know what whether it's true or not. I do think as well it also has that kind of old Hollywood detective feel about it. Like we're a lot of, uh, you know, black and white shutters on the, shutter shadows on the window, that kind of stuff. It's got that feel about it. And Morgan Freeman feels like he's from a 50s detective film anyway, yeah. doesn't he? Like everything about him. Because he does the voiceovers as well. Which feels very um no. Like yeah. Morgan Freeman does feel like he's come out of a 70s detect a proper 70s detective film where the actual story is fine working out who did it rather than focusing on the horrendous yeah. nature of the actual killings. But as you say, it all comes it's all those elements together that work so brilliantly. What you were saying about Gwyneth's head in a box. The it's Hermosa, my head in a box. Originally originally in the version, it's not her head in the box. It's the fetus that John Doe cuts out of her and leaves in the box. Which obviously they wouldn't do for Hollywood because that would be a step too far. So, Because I read somewhere, IMBD, I'll not pretend that I read it in some <laughs> smart, on IMBD, I read that um, Brad Pitt, they wanted to change the ending of the head 
and Brad Pitt refused to do the film if they did because he didn't want, you know, the, I think they wanted it to make it more of a, less of a dark ending. Yeah, if I remember Literally. rightly, they, they wanted they wanted to be the case that she survived and he was like, no, this film doesn't work unless it actually completes the whole set of killings, which it, which it wouldn't. I'd, it wouldn't if, feel... she, if she survived, he, he wouldn't have had any need to do what he did at the end, I don't think. Unless, because he finds out she's pregnant, if it was the fetus, but it wasn't actually hers, and then he killed John Doe, and then she were actually at home alive because it weren't her baby that he'd taken, then it would work. But that's too complex, because then we'd have to have even more story. After, I think after... I think given that he wasn't aware of the pregnancy at the point where he's faced with John Doe, I think the he- having Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box is far more effective because it's an instant reason for him to snap. It's something he can instantly relate his grief to. Whereas if he found out that his unborn, if an unborn fetus was in there, it's not, I know it sounds horrible, he's not really formed an attachment to it because he didn't know about it. So it's not really a reason to go shooting somebody in the head. Yeah, but he probably would have killed the mother extracting the baby. I think he would have still his mind being dead. I think that I think that oh he didn't oh he didn't know line would still work equally well regard on either of them. Mm. Is a great is a great line. It's his, a great line. His, his, his reaction and his the delivery of it is yeah the, oh he didn't know like almost gleeful about it like I mean, yeah I know like I know where my fate is set now I know he's going to do this I mean that's that's brilliant. Brad I always say about Brad Pitt's doing is what is what's in the box what's in the box see is when when I revisited this again is what's what in the what's in the box I over dramatized for comedy effect what's in the box <laughs> is it's not as bad. The bit where, unfortunately, he's a great actor. He's not one of the all-time greats. Is when he tries to go from crying to not crying just before he shoots John Doe. I like that. No, because I like how he's he's struggling with his turmoil. He's struggling with his. Beer. It's not. It's it's switched though. It's not. It's like he's struggling with his turmoil. Turn a light switch on and off but at that point. It is because he's he's literally got this decision to make of does he run with his heart or his head. You know, he knows yeah. he's not going to be able to go back to his wife, but is a cop at the same time, so he can't really extract justice. Is yeah. Also, I think because um, earlier on in the film, he does use some like derogatory, like homophobic language when he's like insulting things, and I think it's also like um, just me being me, almost him wanting to protect his mass, his his masculinity as well. Like you don't want to cry in front of other people um, and also doesn't want to let John Doe win and if he just breaks down in tears he's, he's won basically whereas Morgan Freeman's right he's like if you shoot him he's won mm-hmm. like if you cry he's not one at all because you're not committing wrath um, I, I enjoy that part I do laugh every time I hear the what's in the box line I can't help it um, I don't even think I listen to him say it anymore I think I just say it in my head how I want him how I think he says it um, and I, I'm already laughing when he's doing it, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you on this fear. And this is your film, Chris, and you know we, we should be ripping it to pieces, but we should. But I'm with you. I definitely agree. The, the crying, the crying, and trying to stop that from happening is, um, is I think it's really powerful. Yeah. And I also think because very early on in the film, 
this is so cheesy, but I think this set up like the way that Mills and Tracer and how much they're in love with each other in a very subtle, disgusting way when she picks a bogey out of his nose for him. So they're in bed and she's like, you got a crusty one. And she like picks it out of his nose for him. I'm like, you wouldn't do that with someone unless you fucking adored him, would Mm. you? Um, And just that little image like burns, burnt in my head. So when she was dead, I'm like, oh, fuck, man. He loved her. Also, she was his girlfriend at the time. So he really did love her. So they should have actually just put her head in the box and shown it him. (laughs) Should have, should have really gone full method. Just <laughs> got quite a foul track. Yeah, because uh, at the time they were going out, they did this thing where, I mean, Brad Brad Pitt tends to do this with all these partners that he gets with. He tends to look like them. So if you look back on any sort of publicity shots they have at the time, Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt have the same kind of like, not spiky hair, the kind of spiky down hair, wearing the black leather, and they looked identical. And he does the same with all his girlfriends. I think you're describing Victoria Beckham and David Beckham. I'm not. I'm not. I will send you a picture of it. Yeah, that that by the by. Anyway, we've not we've not even mentioned a couple of the great killers. We're not talking about the lawyers' pound of flesh. They has to they has to leave. Mm-hmm. No cartilage, no fat, just a pound of pound of flesh. Or the model who has to either choose either the OD or live with a face guard. Yeah. I think that's definitely um, inspired. That particular one, I think, definitely had an inspiration for the Saw movies because that was a, that was like a vanity thing. That was everything that John, oh my God, is John Kramer a disciple of John Doe? That would be a good story. It's actually become viral, the book of Saw part three. That would be good. Part seven, surely. Part seven, yeah. Like a like, little universal link. And then it'll be, oh. and what we'll find out is Spiral, the book of, will be a prequel to actual Saw films. And um, John Doe and John Kramer will meet for the first time, except it won't be Kevin Spacey because he's not allowed to work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I laughed at that. Rightly no, so. Not, yeah. Rightly so. But no, I think, um, yeah, the murders are good. And I love, like, the detective work and just the intricacy of how John Doe has planned every, everything out. So, like, not openly putting gluttony on the first murder, but force-feeding him the pieces of the floor so that they have to find it after the second murder. Yeah. And then the thing behind the um, the fingerprint helped Got me. the painting. That's in awesome. the lawyer's office. The only thing, and I've got to tell you this now, the only thing that I think works but doesn't work is the fact that when they're talking about John, after they find Sloth, which is the worst scene in the film, as in, not the worst as in bad as in, it's the most disturbing, I think, because mm. um, it's horrible. And all them things hanging up, just imagine the smell. Can we just quickly say that as when we move on to my choice, I don't know what the deal is with people thinking that they can hide smells with magic trees that are, that are minute size. That is not getting rid of any smells. I don't think Yankee Candles existed at the time, did they? <laughs> Febreze. Yeah. You can, you can, <laughs> they walked in the apartment that smells like Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina. <laughs> 
I bet she is fuming that she didn't think of that back in the day. Um, that would have been a right advertisement for a film, wouldn't it? You can smell my vag instead of a dead body. Um, I just did an honest to God spit take. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, stuff now. the fact that I think it's really cool that, you know, they find them pictures and they go back and it's been a year to the day. Well, the way that they say he planned this for us to find him a year to the day because there was too many variables to be able to plan that they would definitely find him a year to the day. And I just think if they'd have just said he planned us to find him a year later, I'd have been less like, mm. but you know me, I'm pedantic, Chris. He's, and a, I'm he's, a, he's a master manipulator. So he has planned it meticulously so that this does happen. And I'm sorry, of any of any film I've seen, like regardless whether it's serial killer or not, handing yourself over to be interviewed like, please, is a fucking power move. And I understand it's all part of the, you know, the whole plan that he's going with, but it's still a ballsy move, regardless of whether you planned it or not. It's fucking genius because it also it's like a massive statement, I think, from the writer to say, fucking please, I ain't got a clue when it comes to these kind of things. They don't know what they're doing. So the only way I'm going to be able to carry out this plan is to actually physically give them myself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it will, it's just, again, to show how he's in the intelligence, how he's in complete control, as he has been throughout the entire film. He's been moving them around. Because, as you say, he's the one who walks in there. They they could do him there and then. But as we find out, he says, I've got more bodies which are hidden. And they can't risk the PR nightmare of the families not knowing where the bodies are actually buried. Which, truly shockingly enough, you see that in real cases where people where, where serial killers have just refused to disclose where the actual bodies of some of their victims are. Genuine, real life, or are imitating genuinely shocking real life, to be mm. honest. But yeah, mm. so he's he's in complete control the whole way through. He is moving them around like chess pieces. He is, and there's some really cool sequences, I think, such as the photographer scene, where it's him, and we don't know it's him until we find out. But there's also a scene where um, they go to that leather shop. Do you know after they find the picture of the girl and they're in that leather shop? And if they're study, you can see the door in the background and the window. And this man comes hobbling along with a limp in a rain mark, all like covered up. And he just hangs around outside the front door of the shop. And they even walk past him when they leave. Um, and I'm just like, that's got to be him, right? Oh my God, it's Kaiser actually... Soze. <laughs> yeah, it's verbal. It's verbal, kid. <laughs> Maybe. Verbal Kin, The Usual Suspects, is a prequel to Seven. We've got to stop Maybe. making out like everything's a prequel or like we're just spreading rumours at this point. But they're all interesting. But then it's very confusing the way that, like, again, the way that they found his address by using an illegal technique, but with how meticulous he is, you'd have thought that it would have completely covered his back even with things like that. But they said the things that the public wouldn't have known, like you would have had no way of knowing, like when the when the books get checked out and stuff, um, certain books get checked out that will like put you on some sort of list. Public won't know about that. 
So he's not guaranteed to know everything. No, it's more a comment on the sheer the level of intrusion that the US government or governments in general put upon their citizens rather than him being not meticulous enough to know about it. Real in a in a really scary way, it's a it's a statement saying, Oh, look, you have this deep intrusion into your private life but isn't that isn't that a good thing because look what happens when we do have that level of level of knowledge of you maybe this was a, a prequel to donald trump's election as president because he wants to invade personal life not really but the um when they do find him they have the chase scene which is okay i'm, I'm not a massive fan of chase scenes that take too long um but when the sketch artist shows a um, brad pitt the picture that she's drawn of his sketch of Kevin of John Doe, it looks like something a child's drawn. Did you see it? It's just like stick figure. It's just stick figure, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, that could be fucking anyone. Like st- stick figure with his cock out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, anyway, that's not that wasn't funny. Although it was, but no, he's not a nice man. But I think we're getting near the end of this summing up for this one I think we've said pretty much what we can regarding it so I'll just finish by saying Seven is a dark nasty brilliant cop thriller slash family drama slash serial killer slash horrendous death scenes and for that reason and all those reasons you should vote for it as your best and favourite serial killer film. I thank you. Dave Gorman-esque. Nice. So my choice for my favourite serial killer film is the 2019 grimy, dirty, downright, slimy, horrible, need a shower after you've watched The Golden Glove. Thank you. We all feel sufficiently dirty before we even start talking about it, because I do. I feel grimy as fuck. I really want a sausage. (laughs) So uh, this film is based on the real-life serial killer, Fritz Honker, who in the 70s killed at least four, uh, I'm going to say prostitutes because it was mainly prostitutes that he killed, I believe. Um, He used to go into a bar called the Golden Glove and pick up these prostitutes, take them back, beat them and kill them. Um, that is pretty much his story. He stuffed them in this cubby hole underneath his roof, top flat where he lived, and again tried to hide the smell with magic trees because apparently yeah. you can do that. He had one magic tree hanging outside the door of the cupboard. I'm like, no, man. He, ha- he no. had them inside as well, and he threw one back oh. in. Um, he also had various sprays to try and detect the smell, but everybody who came to his flat could smell the smell anyway so there was actually no point in hiding it um his flat is disgusting as it is he lived at the top of the um at the, the top of a building in germany and because he was on the top floor i guess the smell wasn't rising so nobody could really detect what was happening and as is the case a lot of the time with serial killers he was actually found out by accident when a flat was started in his uh, neighbours below, his Turkish neighbours, and they had to evacuate everyone and, you know, put the blaze out and they found in his flat 
all these bodies. And that's how we got found. Um, like I said before, this film is absolutely disgusting. It legitimately just makes me feel dirty watching it. And this was actually the only second time I watched it. Bizarrely enough, but it had such an impact on me on the first one. I'm like, I've definitely got to do this one because it's brilliant. It's got this weird kind of humour to it as well. And it's not a funny film. I will say that. It's, it's, no way is it funny. But it tries to make itself funny in some scenes. It tries to have that kind of Benny Hill-esque kind of feel about it like oh he's such a clumsy elf and oh look what he's doing here and oh he, he can't knock someone out properly and yeah i mean there's a scene when he's taking the three women back to his flat when one of them just falls over yeah just in the middle of the, middle of the street just collapses not not funny intrinsically but done in a way that looks slapstick yeah and the look of this film as well is I, again vile everything's brown everything looks nicotine stained and not washed and unclean. It, it looks like a, it looks, his accommodation looks kind of like a grease trap. Yeah. It's, everything is, as you say, everything is brown. You wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to touch anything going in there. No. Considering he's got page, all the equivalent, German equivalent, I suppose, a page three, topless models yeah. over every available service and he has these pictures there to get himself up to have sex with these prostitutes because they're just not in his you know they're not his type but he's going to do it anyway we should also say as well that he does develop um a crush on well he brings on a lady called Gerda Voss and he develops a bit of a crush on her daughter what, what we find out is her daughter um and he's he only keeps her in the flat to try and get her there but ends up been totally horrible and beating her to a pulp and basically keeping a hostage and keeping her but she's so sad and down and out she's got nowhere else to go i'm just going to jump back to that set design of his flat and everything about it um not just his flat just everything about the film like you said looking grimer mm. it's really the, the the design of his flat is very confusing because obviously we've got all the naked women over the wall which is like very sexual um for him and then we've got all them dolls on his sofa and around the back which is very childlike almost and it's a little like I, do you know like when you just can't work out what they're trying to say like is he did he have an issue with children or is he childlike himself or in my mind i've got it that that's a property passed down to him so that was a property where his mother might have lived and his mother might have kept the dolls and he's taken it over because there are other things in the flat that I wouldn't necessarily expect him to have, like cabinets with, you know, like not china in it, but ornaments in it. It's not something a man really, not to be sexist, but in the 70s in Germany, I wouldn't imagine it would be something for a man to have. No, it's very much the furniture you look at. If you imagine your, your grand's house when you're growing up with the kind of cap, with the cabinets, as you say, display cabinets, and that kind of stuff, that's very much the furniture mm. design for the apartment. So, yeah, very much not what you would expect a man like that. And considering his nature and the fact he seems to have been in St. Pauli for years and he just, because he gets that stage where he says, I'm going to get out. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was kind of growing up there and he's just living there with his mum or whatever. And as you say, he's just then taking the place on mm. after I could completely see that being the... Uh, 
maybe having a read, have a read about him back into his backstory. I wouldn't be shocked to see that's the case. I'm, I'm, I'm buying that scenario fair, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I also love the way, um, well, just him as well, like the way he looks is actually kind of terrifying. He he looks like he like he's gonna rape you. I know that sounds horrible. Can't judge someone like that, but just how they've made him up. And then this, I just think it's so not smart, but so it just looks great. Like we like you can see like on his shirts like brown sweat patches or sweat stains under his pits. So you just get this like like you say it being grimy. You feel like you need to shower. Just Sweating. visually look. You get this, like, this image. You, you can smell. smell him. You can, you smell, can him. smell him. Yeah. Like, you say, you kind of feel like everything you touch in his apartment probably, like, got sticky with grease or, or stuff. It's just, oh, it's horrible, but it's genius. Well, the guy who plays him, Jonas Dassler, looks absolutely nothing like him. I cannot believe the difference, to be quite honest. He looks about 17. It's mental. The way they've done him up, is incredible but yeah like you said that like, he's got like this beat up kind of face like maybe he has been you know maybe he's had some sort of birth deformity or been beat up one too many times in his life they've, they've all got that kind of beaten up beat down kind of face and demeanor less i mean when we go into the golden glove this is this is not a a cheerful happy upbeat pub that everyone goes on down the evening this is an absolute hole that people are drinking themselves to death in. And this is the worst part of the film for me, if I'm quite honest. I mean, yeah, everything he does to the women is horrible. Like, you see him beat them and kill them. Like, there's a horrible scene where he's strangling one of the prostitutes. I mean, there's a horrible scene where he rapes somebody with a hot dog. We'll get to that, I'm sure, because I'm sure people want to talk about that more. But there's a he the girl he ends up doing that to, he strangles her after, and it goes on for so long. It's just so uncomfortable. And these poor women who just have no hope in life whatsoever, they go into this dive bar every single night, knowing that this is all they're ever going to get. They are literally going to be fucked and fucked off every single night. And they drink to try and make it easier but it just makes it worse for them and like the the community they have together is just so depressing it's it's kind of toxic even though it's not of their own doing it's just it's just what they it's what they are it's it's quite sad actually i think mm -hmm. um just that that entire environment that entire that world just that world that being created that really existed mm -hmm. uh, for these people as well um i i honestly i hate <laughs> i hate this film because it's so good at doing what it does mm -hmm. um and that's horrid and like you said it's a bit like Hemre, um all of these characters are just damaged people who've got no real hope no goals no aspirations nothing really to look forward to in life other than getting to the pub and i think this is maybe why you do have that kind of comedic element of it not not a comedic element that's the wrong term i think this is why they do try and find some humor in it 
because when they're in the bar you see how depressing it is and you see how everyone's down on the look and like even the people who are desperate for a drink don't want to drink with Fritz because he's so horrible but they start talking about the nicknames that they're giving to people and like oh he's so-and-so and he's so-and-so and they're all these really funny nicknames and it's like you're trying to bring humor to this because I think it's so downbeat and so dark you need it otherwise I you're will... just gonna <laughs> yeah I'm gonna you know I said before in the past I I don't really like it when um you try and break the tension with comedy in some films like I like in Hemra I wouldn't like a, any comedy thrown in there because I just it wouldn't work in this one though I was desperate for something to just lift the mood because I actually sat watching this film and I was just I hated <laughs> I hated myself while I was watching it I'm like I hate that I am watching this I hate myself I hate the world I hate life I hate this man there were things that I do dislike in this film um I'm just going to throw a fact at you and then I'm going to bring up what I dislike. So the director cut a scene, so they didn't even film it for the film, which was um, a flashback to Fritz's childhood where he gets mm. raped. And they said, I'm not putting that in the film because I don't want, I don't feel like that's a reason that someone should go on and become a killer. I don't want to create a reason that people can sympathize with him basically because right. I don't I don't believe there's an excuse for what he's done so something bad happened to him shouldn't be an excuse for what he does um do, can I just say do you think there might be something in there that might have been lost in translation in him saying he doesn't not necessarily that he doesn't believe it's a reason to go and kill him but saying maybe most people wouldn't go on to do oh, no. that yeah he says that sorry he does say like they do say I, I'm not actually sure if it's a male or female director to be honest um well, it's male um they do actually say other people go through that and don't go on to do this I don't mm. want to include that as a, as a reason but then I also find that there's several points in the film where I almost feel like they are trying to make us feel sorry for Fritz so the very first scene like when he's dumb not when he's trying to wrap the body up but when he's dumping the body which does play out a bit like a, a comedy film when he's carrying that big case and he's like mm. trying to throw the body away um and he's really scared and you're like oh like should we really care about that and then in the bar like you said people going I don't want to drink away off him he's ugly he's so ugly why would I want to drink off him and you're like are you trying to get us to sympathize with him a little I don't think they are because I think in the beginning when that happens, you do some part of you might go, well, you know, he's he's been trod on all his life and nobody wants to give him a chance. But then you see the horrible things he does and think, yeah, I don't fucking blame him, to be quite honest. That bit where Voss has tidied up for him and she's made it because she wants to stay there because she'll be out on the streets if she doesn't. So she's tidied everything up and made it a home for him. And he just beats her in the face and just knocks out at it. It's awful. It's fucking horrible. So any sympathy that could have been garnered from that first scene is totally lost by that point. I agree. From our point of view, we're going to lose that sympathy. But I just did think to myself, I don't, I, I, it just felt a little bit like they wanted me to feel sorry for him. Mm. But 
I don't feel sorry for him at all because of what he does. I, this is, again, this is one of the few films that really gets me. So, for example, when he kicks her out and he hits her in the face, I'm like, just go, just leave. And then she knocks on the door for her teeth and she stays. I'm just like, why, why? I just want you to leave. I don't want, because I feel so sorry for her. Like when we first see her and she's in that bar and you just know that her life is terrible. It's because they're stuck in a cycle that they can't get out of. So if she leaves, she's got nowhere else to go. She stays, she's at least got a roof over her and somewhere maybe she can get a meal. And yeah, she'll be mistreated, but she'll be alive. If she leaves him, she's you know she's going to be sleeping on the streets and possibly die. So they're kind of stuck. There's nowhere for them to go. It's just horrible. It's fair. This film, right, is such <laughs> a misery fest. I don't know why you did it to us. <laughs> I like a misery film sometimes. I don't know why. I like to feel miserable. And that's why I like I... watching threads and when the wind blows and stuff like that, because I like to be miserable sometimes. I, I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to go on record and say this is probably the most miserable film that we've ever had on this show. It's the dirtiest film that we've ever had on. Uh-huh. It's... It's the most horrible film. Does, <laughs> does any anybody want to mention anything about hot dogs or no? Put you off hot dogs for life, has it? I mean, I don't eat hot dogs anyway, but um... I've seen you eat a hot dog. Oh yeah, yeah, hot dog at cinema. You did I that. Not only he doesn't only use hot dogs though, does he? First of all, he uses a wooden spoon on Voss. Um, because he can't perform, and then he uses the hot dog on the other lady. Um, no, it's also on Voss in it. No, it's the lady who gets strangled. No, it's not. That's the very last victim. It's on Voss because he tells her to turn around because she's too ugly, and then he snaps off inside her, and then he eats one off, and then says to her, "The other half's for you." And like, I think it's inside her, and it's horrible. So he's uh, sharing, his, one, sharing his caring. Sharing his caring. The other one, the very last woman, she goes and gets a hot dog out and starts... Oh, yeah, it. yeah. Mustard. She gets a handful of mustard out, fucking cheered. Rubs it on his dick. Goes and wanks him off a little bit on his dick so he's all burning. I'm like, yes, fucking yes. I always yeah. think we, with that lady, I think she's kind of just... And, I can't decide. She's either just given up and is accepting a fate of what's about to happen, or she's just had enough and gone, fuck it, I might as well try and fight back if it's going to be my last time, you know? I think she wants to fight back. I don't think she's... I think she's a little bit more confident than the other women that he's been with. Um, you know, I think she's a little bit more arrogant. She's probably, like, one at Stud's front bar. But yeah. um, the death scenes in this particularly I, I I find very very again disturbing they are there's the the first one that I find quite disturbing is when he starts whacking that woman's head repeatedly on the table yeah because I can't even see how where it cut and became not her no and became like a or something then it's like, like the kind of build up of the blood 
like as a face is getting more and more big. It's fucking horrible. Uh, and there's no warning to it. He just walks over, grabs her head and starts walking her down. I'm like, that's horrible. And that last strangulation scene is, it's so long. Almost kind of makes me think of um, Promising Young Woman, the suffocation scene. Yeah. Where they, how long would it take? I think it's been like, how long would it take to actually strangle someone until they pass out? And if they fight back, it could take this long. Um, another interesting <coughs> fact they actually had a female psychologist on set for the women in the film. Oh, good. Because of how disturbing the rape and violent scenes are. Um, so I, I think that's a really good thing. To I do. think that's important to have that, especially for this film. Yeah. yeah. This film is just horrible. I think, honestly, my notes literally go, for fuck's sake, fuck, oh my fucking God, this is awful. Fuck me. Oh, no, no, no. No, I mean, I think no. I think that at the same time is what makes it such a great film, because it ain't leaving your memory anytime soon, is it? No. When you talk about humour, there's a, there's a scene that I do actually giggle at a little bit, and it's when then I mean I don't really get the need for that young boy to be in the film. The the boy with the long hair. That that scene near the end where he wants to go in the Golden Globe when he goes in with her, and she's like, "What well, you want to go in there?" Is that yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I think he's just a counterpoint to how he could go in there at that time and how quickly you get used to just being in there and drinking with everyone and how quickly your life can go unravelling that regard. Mm. I can't see him being any other reason for him being in there. He's, he's also that. got the connection to the young girl as well in that he knows her and he's been for a drink with her. And I don't know, maybe they were looking to take it in that direction for Fritz to meet her at some point, but didn't. But again, like Chris was saying, it's probably just, you know, it's a small town and it might be that these are the rituals you go through. Like when you're younger and you go, oh, we're going to go and get, let's go and have a, a drink at gate because that's where everybody went when you were younger. It's a rite of passage. In the gate, are you saying? <laughs> Not in the gate, yeah. in the gate. The gate. <laughs> when you're saying gay, I'm like, in the gate, what? Uh, anyway, the very first time he goes into that pub and he sat down on his own, and SS Norbert just like sweeps around the corner and stares at him. <laughs> that made me piss myself. I'm like, where does he just come from? But then later on, that scene that he has where he's in the toilet, and he's like, did you, did you speak to me while I'm having a piss? And he's like, yeah. And then he makes him face one and pisses on him. I'm like, this is, like, everyone in this place is fucked, man. Everyone. We've actually been in a pub called the Golden Gloves. We have. In Kalea. It was a rock bar. It was really nice. Nothing to do with this film. Nobody was pissing on anybody. Or I don't know if there were prostitutes in there. There might have been. But it was a good pub. Again, nothing to do with this film. Just really enjoyed that pub. Um, yeah, I, I'll sum this up. And, you know, I, I don't really know how to sum it up. It's a nasty piece of work, this film. Absolutely nasty. But that's why I like it, because it pushes it. It pushes it where most films wouldn't. And I'm not one of those horror fans who needs to see go and needs to see violence because I can have just of an effective time watching something where you don't see anything. I'm not that kind of person, I don't live for it. 
but it's done to such an extent in this film that it, it does make me uncomfortable in places because of how realistic it looks. And I kind of, I, I love that at the same time because you've managed to make something look so realistic. Like in Kill List with the knee and the hammer, it's horrible to watch. But at the same time, you've got to appreciate the effort that's gone into it and how good that looks on screen. So yeah, um, vote Golden Glove for your best serial killer because it's something else. There you go. So another round of applause for all, all three films today. You did get a round of applause. Yeah. I gave you a round oh, of applause. Thank you. Three spectacularly strong serial killer films for this week. I love all of them. Mm. <laughs> really enjoyed all three of them. So it's going to be hard for the our audience to choose, I imagine, which is a beautiful segue into saying that we will put the poll out for you to vote on your favourite serial killer film from our choices. Let us know how you voted and why you did vote that way. You can find us on Twitter at SpitGraze, where the poll will be. We're also at SpitGraze on Instagram. We are I Spit on Your Graze on Facebook. And if you need to email us for any reason, you can always reach us at electricpossums at gmail.com. And please don't forget the rate, review and subscribe if you've enjoyed this or any other episode. And please, if you've enjoyed it, let other people know. Get the word out there. See if they enjoy it too or if they've stopped speaking to you. Buy a hot dog. Share it with your friend. Buy, buy a hot dog, cover it in mustard and then wank someone off. That's my Friday nights. Lol. Any more for any more? No, all good. All yeah. great there. Say goodbye then, Faye. Goodbye then, Faye. Goodbye then, Mercer. Goodbye then, Mercer. And it's goodbye from me. Bye, everyone.